0: All right. Good morning, everybody. Y'all doing all right? Okay. If you are like Dave McClary and looked a little upset when you realized you didn't fit into that young adult category anymore, I want to remind you that it's group Sunday, so you can hit any of the tables out there. There is a table for you, I'm sure. Uh, make sure you engage there. Uh, but I'm excited, guys. This has been an awesome service. and I just like sitting out there today. Uh, I've been pretty overwhelmed with, I think, the good news of what God has done for us. But as we get ready to jump in, I'd love to know, do we have any Malcolm Gladwell fans in here? Okay, okay, we've got one, two, three. Okay, we got three, great, okay. So uh, for those of you who are not Malcolm Gladwell fans, Malcolm Gladwell is uh, an author, a journalist, and uh, all around intriguing guy. And one of the things I am fascinated by with him is his ability to take these like, different learnings from sociology, from psychology, from history, and weave this research together to show implications for how we live in our world, how we think about our world, how we think about problems in our world. He's just brilliant at doing those kinds of things. And several years ago, he wrote a book called Outliers, the story of success. And in that book, Gladwell talks about what it is that that makes up successful people looking at different uh, Uh, contributors to that. So how is it that a person's circumstances play into that? How is it that their motivation plays into it? What is it that helps people really succeed? For example, as he looked at that book, he looked at the Junior Hockey League in Canada. I'm sure we got a lot of big Hockey fans in here, right? Yeah, just kidding. No. Uh, We we did have one. Did we have a hockey fan? That's great. Awesome. Well, for the uh, junior league in Canada, those leagues are broken up based upon age. All right. So they're broken up different ages. And the birthday cutoff for that is January. January. So, if you guys don't know this, if you're born in January of a year and someone else is born in February, you're older than the person born in February, and you can trace that all the way down to December if you would like, but the oldest kids are born in January, you get the picture, and uh, in this league what they did is they looked at um, the different birth dates by quarter to see what percentage of the leagues were made up of people born in different quarters. So, if you look at this chart, you'll see that people born in the first quarter of about 40 percent, right around there, between 35, 40 percent of players were born in, the, born in the first quarter. Right around 30 percent were born in the second quarter. If you go to the third quarter, it drops down to 20, under 20 quite a bit. And if you get to the fourth quarter, it's like 10 to 15 percent. And so the question is, is, why is this the case? Well, because it's the same in like soccer leagues around the world. So he asked the question, why is this the case? And things he shows is that if you start playing a sport at six years old and you're the oldest in that cutoff group, you are six to 11 months older, right, than anyone born in the third or fourth quarter, which means you are a whole lot more physically developed than those younger than you. And so the result for a lot of kids in that age group, it's not true for all of them, but the result for a lot of them is they end up being the ones that make the all-star teams from a young age, which means they get more practice, they get more training, and as an effect, they end up oftentimes making up more of these different leagues as they move up and through the different ages. That's not the only factor, but he shows that, that those people have an advantage. Well, if hockey isn't your thing, he also looks at history and looks at the 75 wealthiest people to ever live if you were to take those money and put it into today's U.S. dollars. And what he found is out of the 75 most wealthy people to ever live in the world, 14 of them were born in, a, in the United States in a nine-year span. Nine years made up 14 out of those 75 people. So so this happened in the uh, middle 19th century. So the question is, what is it that happened in the 1860s and 70s that allowed for this to be the case? Where 14 of the 75 wealthiest people to ever live being born in that time period. Well, during that time, the American economy went under what was probably its greatest transformation in history. It was a time where there was the emergence of Wall Street, the expansion of railroads. And so there were people like John D. Rockefeller, Andrew uh, Carnegie and J.P. Morgan who were at the right age to take advantage of this transformation. So he looks at different stories like this throughout his books and he looks at this, uh, how these stories of success and what he says is it's not always the brightest that succeed. He goes on to note, nor is success simply the sum of the decisions and efforts we make on our own behalf. It is rather a gift. Outliers are those who have been given opportunities and who had the strength and presence of mind to seize them. In a sense, Gladwell is arguing that these people are people who were born, in some sense, with some advantages that allowed them to succeed above and beyond some of their peers, simply because of things that were outside of their control. And what he does, he goes on to show the implications for this, even for broader society. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 3. The reality is, is that if you guys wanted a uh, lesson in social sciences, there's a couple of universities in town that would do much better than I can do in helping you out there. But what I think we see here is Gladwell actually frames up pretty well what Paul is getting at as we move into Romans chapter 3. He's engaging with a similar question that Paul seems to be wrestling with. And today I want us to wrestle this question to the ground. Are some born with spiritual advantages that allow them to succeed and be included in God's family above and beyond some others? Now, this is an important question throughout the book of Romans, like we've already talked about in this series. There was a really big dispute in the church at Rome between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And we need to remember that the Jewish Christians were people that had been part of God's people for over 2000 years. I mean, this goes all the way back to when God called Abraham out of the land of Ur, all the way back Genesis chapter 12, up to this point, they have been part of the people of God. So they're asking the question, surely there's got to be some advantage. But Paul engages with this question even there in the first verse in chapter three. He says, what advantage then is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? Now, this sets off a series of questions that Paul asks, and if we don't know any better, we may look at Paul's series of questions and think he's just like some crazy person that's talking to himself over and over again. But what Paul is actually doing is he's anticipating questions that the hearers of this letter would have. So he said all of these things up to this point, and he anticipates that there's probably going to be somebody who's asking this question, and then this question, and then this question. So he's answering these questions before people have the chance to bring them up. And in chapter two, what we see is that that Paul has already engaged with this question a little bit, and he ruled out the possession of the law, and he ruled out circumcision as the things that set people apart as being part of the people of God, as being a great advantage to them. Now, these two things, the possession of the law and this circumcision idea, these were really big deals for the Jewish nation, for what made them who they were, for their identity as the people of God. So I want us to do just what I want us to do as we get going here is to look at the first eight verses of chapter three of Romans. We're just going to fly through this part because it's going to set us up for what comes. Paul asks these series of questions, again, anticipating some objections. And he asks that first question, uh, verse one, it says, what advantage then is there for being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? In light of what we have just said, we'd anticipate the answer being none. But what he says is much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. So Jews have an advantage in some sense because God has given them his word. And we'll get to that here in a few minutes. He goes on to say, so what if some were unfaithful? So some Jews were unfaithful with what they received. Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? He's saying, so if some Jews were unfaithful, will this nullify God's plan? Will this change God's plan? Does this mean God's not coming through on what God said he would do? He says, not at all. Let God be true and every human, a liar. He's saying, look, God is always faithful. And compared to him, you see the foolishness of people. Now he goes on to address a couple of questions. But if our unrighteousness, so if our unfaithfulness goes on to show just how great God is, if our unrighteousness shows just how righteous God is, then, then is God unjust in bringing wrath on us? He says, that's crazy. That, that's not the case at all. He says, this is just a human argument. So he goes on with this argument throughout this section. And his key point in verses 1 through 8 is that God is faithful. God has done what he said he was going to do and God continues to do what he says he's going to do. And then in chapter three, verse nine, he picks up on that question he asked in verse one and he seems to have like short-term memory loss because here's what he says. He says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage, we being Jews? He says, not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. So did Paul forget what he just wrote or what is it that Paul's doing? (laughs) No, you see what Paul is doing here is he's showing that each and every human being has an equal opportunity to salvation now because of what we're about to see here in a few minutes. What he did in chapter 3, verse 1, is he showed that the Jewish people had an advantage in that they had access to God's revelation. They had access to see that God was going to see a Messiah that God, or God was going to send a Messiah. They had access to God's word, but having the very words of God, having access to the very words of God, that, that didn't give them extra credit towards salvation. Didn't have a salvific advantage. Didn't give them an advantage before God as something that says, oh, yeah, that person should be saved. They have my very words. No, what mattered was how they responded to his word. So there in verse 9, he says there's no advantage at all. And did you see what he said after that? This is really important for us to understand the problem that we are wrestling through. He says there in, in verse 9, there in the second half, he says, For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles all alike are all under the power of sin. Now, Did you notice what Paul didn't say there? He didn't say that some people struggle with sins or that all people struggle with sins. He didn't say that that people have these different problems, that they're just sinners, sometimes that they just have some problems. He says that both Jew and Gentile are under the power of sin. This means that you and I, our problem is not that we sin sometimes. Our problem is that apart from Christ, we are enslaved to sin. We are under the reign of sin. I don't know about your life story, but but I remember the time in my own life whenever I had to reckon with that. I had a long time where I thought I could just stop this sin whenever I wanted. But I remember having a reckoning moment when I realized I, I can't do this. So Paul goes on to show how both Jew and Gentile are under sin. And he highlights this by using a series of quotes from the Old Testament. So let's go ahead and read verses 10 through 18. If you didn't have like an encouraging word of the day today, then get ready. It says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. Their poison or the poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways in the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now again, I don't know how many times it's popped up on your Bible app as the verse of the day or like you've been driving somewhere, listening to K-Love and it's like, encouraging word of the day. There's no one righteous, no, not one. You know, going on and talking about... The whatever it is, vipers on your lips and all that stuff. I don't hear that very much as a very encouraging word. And if uh, he kind of goes through that list in those first couple verses there, like 10 through 12 are, are sort of that overview of what he's saying. And then he goes on for a couple of verses there to talk about the struggle of the sin of our lips, the, the challenge with our communication. I think part of that is, is if you want to see people's inability to control their own sin, pay attention to their mouths, right? Look at your own life, the struggle with gossip. If you look at the book of James, he'll make this real clear. There's a struggle there. He goes on to talk about the sin of violence and these different violent sins people are struggling with. And again, if 10 through 17 weren't depressing enough, he caps it off in verse 18 by saying, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Which means that these people are so fixed on the presence present that there is no reverence for God and no fear of what may come if we reject God in this life. There's no fear of God. There's no awareness of what it looks like to live accountable to him. So Paul makes it clear. Every person is accountable before God. One cannot be made righteous by works of the law. Rather, the law, he goes on to say, makes us conscious of our sin. And maybe you've had that moment in your own life where you've looked at the law of God that God has laid out for his people. And what you do whenever you see that is you just become more and more conscious of your own sin. You become more and more conscious of your own inability to to live this out in one way or another in your own strength. In light of all of this, what hope do we have? What is it that they can maybe bring us some semblance of hope for where we are today? If this is the case, that both Jew and Gentile, so all people are under the power of sin. If all of us are, none of us are righteous, no, not one. What hope is there? I love verse 21. He says, but now. Paul says, hey, pay attention. Here is what God has been promising to do all along. He says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and prophets testify. What is it that's finally here? What is it that God's doing? What is it that Paul is introducing here? He's saying that the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. He points all the way back to chapter one, verse 17, where he first talked about the righteousness of God being revealed from faith for faith. He talks about how this was God's plan all along by saying that this is what the law and the prophets pointed to, which Paul has been saying since chapter one, verse two, when he talks about the gospel being what God promised beforehand through the prophets and holy scriptures. This is what God had promised to do. It's happening now. So he goes on to say in verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The gift of righteousness, the gift of being restored into a right relationship with God, this is an incredible gift. I mean, maybe in your life, you've had a time where there was a relationship that you really treasured where there was a breakdown in that relationship. What Paul is pointing to here is that taking place in the ultimate relationship we were created for, our relationship with God. And he's saying that God did what it took to make that relationship right. If you've experienced the pain of a broken relationship before, imagine the goodness of God coming in and healing that. That's what God has done between us and him. And he does this through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. I'll come back to this idea of faith here in just a minute. But first, I just want to say loud and clear that there is no advantage for Jew and Gentile. There's no advantage, no matter what your pedigree is, no matter what your story is coming into this room. God gives this gift to all, regardless of what your story has been. It doesn't matter what it has looked like for you to be under the power of sin. It doesn't matter what that sin struggle has been. It doesn't mean if that sin is idolatry or pride, it doesn't matter. If it's sexual impurity or gossip, if it's arrogance or homosexuality, if it's evil or wickedness, if it's greed or disobedience of parents, it doesn't matter if your sin is hypocrisy or if it's loving the praise of people more than the praise of God. Whatever it is that has power over you, whatever it is that had power over you, whatever it is that holds you captive, it doesn't matter whatever it is that rightly places you under the wrath of God, God gives this gift of righteousness to all who believe in Jesus. He's writing a new story. He's writing something better. So why is this so important? Well, he goes on in verse 23 to say, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor or this is your first time in this room. It doesn't matter if you're an elder or you've like spent most of your life just trying to run as far away from God as you can. It doesn't matter if you're a longtime Christian, a new Christian. It doesn't matter what your story is. There's an invitation for you here. None of us are blameless in and of ourselves. None of us have this power on our own to rescue ourselves. We all need this grace and forgiveness. God's not gonna look at your your sin history up to this point or your church attendance record and say, yes, that's what makes you qualified. No, God is looking at something different. He's saying we are all on equal ground before God and we all have to turn to the same thing if we want to experience hope and life. So in verse 24, he says, he goes from all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God to go on and say, and all are justified. Now that all are justified is qualified there in verse 22, where he says that it's all who believe in Christ, that all who are justified are those who've placed their faith in Christ. And he uses a law court metaphor to kind of roll out what this looks like. And this metaphor is marked by that word justification. We've been justified. This is the image of a a judge acquitting and saying that you are in good standing in in the eyes of the law. This is God saying that you are in good standing before him. You've been acquitted of sin. But how God brought this about is pretty incredible. Just imagine being in a courtroom and you're sitting there in the defendant's seat. And you know that you can do nothing to get off the hook for this. I mean, you are there, you're on the defendant's seat, and you have no defense. And the right judgment is death. The amazing thing that Paul is telling us is that this is the case for all of humanity apart from Christ. So what did God do to fix things? What did God do to address this problem? Well, what he did is he actually took on flesh in the person of Jesus. And Jesus went and sat in that defendant seat on behalf of humankind. And as Jesus sat there, he had a perfect record and yet he bore the sin, he bore the pain, he bore what it is that you and I deserve on the cross. He took our place. God declares that now because of that, because Jesus has paid this price, because Jesus has gotten rid of this sin, we can experience forgiveness. We can be acquitted and be placed in good standing with God. And God does this. He says by grace. This is God. This is a God initiated extravagant gift. God starts this. He doesn't wait for you to get your stuff together and then start moving towards you. No, God starts this in himself. And he gives us this gift, whether we are deserving of the gift or not, The reality is, no matter what our story is, he's saying that none of us have been deserving of this. But God doesn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. No, he takes the initiative and he steps in. And with this gift of grace, the thing we need to recognize is that it's a gift that that he does call for a response with, right? He calls for us to respond to his showing of kindness by faith. But Paul doesn't stop here. He goes on to spell out uh, what this means for us. How is it that God brought about this justification? And I love this part of this passage. I mean, if you remember back in chapter three, verse nine, what Paul told us there is that we are all under the power of sin. Both Jew and Gentile. What we need is to be set free from that. So what Paul does here is he brings in this language of redemption. And what redemption is referring to is a couple of things. One would be someone who was a slave or a, a, uh, yeah, who was a slave, or someone who had been captured in war and was a, a prisoner of war. So there's someone that's been uh, arrested, or someone that is, is a slave or someone that's been captured in war. And this redemption is talking about to liberate by paying the price. And what Paul is saying is that we are justified because Jesus paid the price that we deserve being under the reign of sin. We were slaves to sin, and Jesus paid the price that we owed to set us free from that, to give us the opportunity to experience freedom, to be redeemed. This payment was, again, given by grace, and it sets us free from the power of sin. I believe that God's grace, just like his kindness in chapter 2, verse 4, is to lead us to repentance, to lead us to turn away from sin and run toward God. Now, how did God bring about this redemption? I mean, how can a righteous God declare the unrighteous people to be righteous? Did God compromise his righteousness? Or instead of maybe compromising his righteousness, did he just decide to start condoning unrighteousness? Let's see how Paul addresses this question in verses 25 and 26. He says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just in the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. Now the word they're used for uh, sacrifice of atonement uh, is a, a one Greek word that, that's used to make up all of that. And the fancy theological word for that is propitiation. And I will never forget that word because whenever I was in college, um, I got an assignment coming out of a class my junior year and I was supposed to read this book and like look up any words I didn't know what they meant. And uh, I showed up to class a couple days later. and My professor said, okay, propitiation, Andrew, what does it mean? And I said, I don't know. So I uh, had no idea, did not do my homework or anything. So it's my confession moment, Dr. Girdwood. I'm sorry. I um, hope you still love me. But anyways, this word is one I haven't forgotten since, propitiation, and it's a really big deal. It's translated here as sacrifice of atonement, but, but it refers to this idea of, of God's wrath being appeased or God's wrath being turned aside. It's God's wrath being poured out upon someone and saying that Jesus was set forth as the propitiation. And this isn't something that's maybe super popular. Some people have used this to try to say that God's some kind of like divine child abuser or something like that. But that misunderstands Jesus's agency in this process. You see, Jesus and God the Father, they are one. They are a triune God. And what we see in the Gospels is that Jesus didn't go to the cross kicking and screaming, screaming. No, if you look at the gospel of Luke, it says that Jesus set his face toward the cross and he went there determined to do what he knew he had to do. Not only that, but you see Jesus himself say that no one can take my life, but I willingly lay it down. So Jesus went and paid this price on our behalf. He went to be the substitute for us, to be the one to bear the wrath of God for us. And he went willingly. At this point, we see that this unresolved problem that started all the way back in chapter one, verse 18, where he started to talk about the right or the wrath of God being revealed, is now being um, resolved in this moment. God's right action towards sin and sinners was poured out upon Christ. He was the one who took our place. He took my place and your place. He took the punishment that I deserved and you deserve. That punishment of death, that punishment of alienation from God was something that he took on himself. And at the cross, we see in Jesus that justice and love meet together. At the cross, we see that God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Don't miss this because if you do, you will miss the heart of God that is made clear here. You see, God didn't look at us and see us merely as sinners and say, oh, I'll just show some pity on you. No, I love how Joshua Ryan Butler, he's a pastor and author. He says this, we are revealed in this passage as loved sinners. It's not just that we are sinners who God had pity on. No, God made us objects of his love while we were still sinners. While we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. And in doing this, Jesus does two things simultaneously. He reveals God's justice against sin, and he bears the punishment. He bears the judgment on our behalf. This is the ultimate revelation of God's unfathomable love for me and for you. It's seen at the cross. It's seen where love and justice meet. So now God's question to you is not, um, do you have the the right pedigree to make it into the kingdom? Are you good enough to be brought into my family? Are you good enough? Are, are you, do you have the right family members? Do you have the right track record? No. Rather, what he does is he looks at you and me and he says, will you come in? Will you allow me to wash you clean? Will you allow me to heal you? Will you experience forgiveness? Will you be welcomed into this new family I've made for myself? Will you come in and experience this goodness? What's amazing is this doesn't just change something for you as a person or me as a person. It changes something for us as a people. God is bringing us into a brand new family, a brand new covenant, a brand new community of people in and through the work of Christ. And he goes on in verses 27 through 31 to show the implications of this justification. He says, where then is boasting? It is excluded. Again, if you had any reason you thought to boast, he's gone ahead and he's struck that down. He said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no room for boasting in the people of God because we all got here the same way, in and through Christ. Because goes on to say, because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by the same faith. Do we then nullify the law? By this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. So he goes on there first, shows that there's no boasting. Second, he shows that, that there's no way for us to justify ourselves by works, but again, that we continue to walk by faith. Then he shows once again that God is making one new family. This whole idea of the new covenant, whenever he established the first covenant with the people of Israel, he was making a people for himself, calling a people to himself. God's doing that thing again so that all who are in Christ are seen as the people of God. We are united together because whenever God sees us, he sees us united in Christ. And that should change things for us. I don't know what your story is. I don't know where you came in today. but I was struck as we were just singing a few minutes ago by those words, free, free, forever we're free. Come join the song of all the redeemed. Is that right? I was just struck by that invitation. Jesus offers freedom. He says, come join the song of all the redeemed. If you're in a place right now where maybe sin has power over your life and you recognize you can't get out of that on your own, I want you to hear that invitation to come experience freedom. To come experience redemption. To come experience the glory of having someone else who died in your place because he loved you. Come to the one who loved you before you were maybe even lovable. He loved you before you had it together, and he's given you the opportunity. I want to challenge you to just say yes to him today. If you're wondering what your next step is, it's to say yes. Or maybe you're in a place where you hear that, and you're like, it still sounds crazy to me. Then your next step is to come and have a conversation with someone about it. I would love for you to come tell me that you thought that this was the dumbest thing on earth and that you just wasted your time. Let's talk about why that is and see what God might say to us, how we can better see God's heart for you. I want to challenge you to respond to this by saying yes to Jesus. But maybe you've been in this room for a while you know that truth really well. In fact, maybe it is so deep in your heart that as we were singing earlier today, you couldn't help but jumping up and down because you love the truth we were singing. If that's you, I'm gonna say, take this framework that Paul just gave us for the good news and carry it with you the rest of this week. Who is it that needs to hear that same good news of freedom? The incredible thing about the gospel, the good news of the gospel, is you don't have to know the word propitiation to share the good news with someone. You have to be able to share the good news of what God has done in your life. Share the good news about how Christ came and died in your place and gave you freedom. I say the invitation's there for you too. Will you come join the song of all the redeemed? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for being a good God who loves us and cares for us. God, you're a God who loved me whenever I was stuck in my sin. You're a God who loves me now whenever I get myself stuck in my sin again. And you say, I came to give you freedom. God, thank you so much for the gift of your righteousness that I don't deserve. God, I know it's a gift you desire to to spread to each and every one of us. So, God, I pray right now that you would draw us deeper to your heart, that we would better see and understand you, that we would come and experience the freedom you desire to give, that freedom from the power of sin, the incredible joy of being part of your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.